This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 24th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court yesterday threw out a New York law that handed bureaucrats the power to deny individuals the right to bear arms. The high court opinion only affects a few states, but Cato's Trevor Burris argues that the court is now providing states with better guidance to determine whether a gun restriction passes constitutional muster going forward. We spoke today. This case follows on two other major cases. Heller, which our own Clark Neely was sort of his brainchild uh, to get that case going, which found an individual right to keep and bear arms. And McDonald then, uh, beyond that, incorporated that right against the states, which is still a little confusing to me, the idea of incorporation. But this case seems both smaller and bigger at the same time. So what was, uh, what was this case about? And what did the court find? Well, first, I want to quibble with your uh, word and your description of Heller. Heller didn't find the right. The right pre-exists. <laughs> That's right. That's uh, right. It, it, the, the pre- Heller uh, articulated that the Second Amendment protects the pre-existing right to, nat- to self-defense, which includes the right to have effective means to self-defense, which therefore includes the right to have weapons, including firearms, for the purposes of self-defense, kept in your home. Heller was limited to keep so it says right to keep and bear arms so you could say heller was about the keep part because all that that dick heller the plaintiff was asking for was the right to keep a a handgun in his home which which dc essentially prohibited this was about new york's law about bearing arms and specifically their permitting system uh that was what we call a may issue permitting system which is only only six states in the District of Columbia really have this permitting system. What that means is that if you want to get a license to carry a gun in New York, or if you wanted to get a license to carry a gun in New York, uh, you, you'd you had to do the kind of same objective tests that are common in, in many states, but all the states where, you know, take a gun safety class, take a maybe a shooting class, take a class on the law of self-defense, get a mental health check, a background check. Um, and so those are the kind of objective criteria that if you pass all those, you get a permit. But New York and Massachusetts and Hawaii and other states add another characteristic, which is you have to demonstrate a specific threat to you that justifies you getting a gun to carry. So over and, over and above, fairly burdensome uh, requirements uh, to get it objectively, then the state can still say, mm, this isn't for you. And for fun- yes. for fundamental rights, maybe that's not how we ought to do things. It's a little weird. Um, it, it, and this involves the state in this, in, you know, incarnation, wherever the state, whatever state we're talking about was like the local sheriff or a judge, just like a bureaucrat that you had to convince you were like sufficient to, to do the bare part of the Second Amendment. Um, and that's something wrong with that. And it, and it had to be very specific. Uh, New York Solicitor General was asked at oral argument uh, whether or not a woman who works at a bar in New York City who walks home every night in an area that has a lot of muggings and a lot of crime, if she would, that would be specific enough for her. And he said, uh, no, um, it, that's a generalized fear. It would have to be like a threat against her, right, in some way. And so that's how, that's how restrictive it was. And, and in practice, so New York functionally didn't issue these permits and neither did any other states that did the may issue permitting system uh so and then if you think about another context of other constitutional rights say the first amendment so let's say you want to hold a protest or a rally 
And therefore, you go to like the city and you say, you do the kind of things where you, you get a permit for it and it says how long you can go, like 10 to 4, how loud your speakers can be, that you can't block traffic, you know. But let's say if there was another criterion at the end that said, and the sheriff shall determine if what you have to say is worth saying. This would be blatantly unconstitutional. It wouldn't pass even the, the, the lowest court. It would, no one doubts that's unconstitutional. But when it came to the Second Amendment, which is just as much in the Constitution as the First Amendment, you had these states essentially doing that when it came to the right to bear arms, which is explicitly listed in the Second Amendment. So what the court did in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin case was actually quite modest. It was it struck down that that part of states that have that subjective component of a licensing regime. It didn't strike down any objective component of a licensing regime. It didn't affect what weapons you can own. It didn't affect who can own the weapons. It just said, if you are a law-abiding person who can lawfully own a gun in New York under their system of already pretty onerous permitting, you now can do, you know, can't be prohibited from carrying that with this objective test that, that they struck down. The term law-abiding citizen here uh, I think Evan Burnick and I think even Clark Neely uh, here at Cato sort of took issue with that in the sense that almost none of us are law-abiding citizens as a practical matter. Yes, uh, and that's interesting. I think as shorthand, what Thomas is saying in that, Justice Clarence Thomas, who wrote the majority opinion, which was 6-3, uh, the six Republican appointees and the three Democrat appointees on the other side. Um, I think what he was really saying is that whatever criteria are needed for owning a gun in your state and federally that uh, you meet those. So, you know, there are people who are prohibited from owning a gun, felons, illegal immigrants, people who have been dishonorably discharged from the military. Uh, but, but Evan and Clark are correct in terms of whether or not any of us are law-abiding. That can be a, a, hard, a hard bar to reach uh, given the amount of laws that we could be violating. But if, you know, if you can own a gun, and again, you know, many of these, the, the court did not touch even the permitting restrictions that states like New York and Massachusetts have for just owning a gun, aside from carrying a gun, uh, those were not before the court. They still make it very difficult to own a gun in those states. But they still kind of said that you can't make it more difficult to carry uh, with that subjective criteria. Yeah. So uh, the objective criteria not really touched. Um, you wouldn't get that sense from a lot of the reaction from uh, people who are opposed to uh, this decision. And so for these states, they throw out this uh, veto point, essentially, that uh, bureaucrats can use using subjective criteria uh, and not much else changes. That seems to follow along with the court's previous jurisprudence on the Second Amendment uh, over the last uh, decade or so, decade and a half, um, in the sense that this is a small thing that we have found that nonetheless has large implications for the individual right. Absolutely. In terms of the effects of this, again, it only affects these may issue states, these six may issue states. Um, and they can do a lot, uh, and they will, uh, to make the objective licensing scheme that they will now have to put in place you know, as onerous as they possibly can. We've seen this in a lot of states that said, okay, it'll be an objective test, but now you have to run a marathon before you can, or something like that, you know, like, you know, take six months of triage medicine classes before you can carry a weapon or something like that, or, or a week of a class that costs $10,000. And they'll say, well, now this is objective. And that could be a different case in the future where you're like, okay, give me a break. Uh, you're really burdening the right to keep and bear arms. What's really important in this decision though, 
it, and if you wanted to freak out about it as like a gun control advocate, it's that Justice Thomas took the approach that we advocated and have advocated for a long time at Cato and in our brief to the court and others too have advocated that we are no longer going to use what had become a two-step test to test firearm regulations after Heller. Uh, and that two-step test was sort of like, is this the kind of thing that uh, is within the Second Amendment protects? And then it was a balancing test. And the balancing test meant that judges all over the country who didn't like guns were constantly just upholding really silly gun regulations, uh, very judge and power. And it's different than other, again, other constitutional rights. What Justice Thomas said, we are now going to take away, it's just a one-step question. Is this something that fits within the text history and tradition of the Second Amendment. So kind of like, is this something that people who ratified the Second Amendment would have been okay with or not okay with within the context of that? And that that comports with other amendments. The First Amendment, it doesn't have a balancing test to it for most parts of it. If there's if it is political speech, if we determine that something is political speech and political speech is being censored in some way, we ask, does the First Amendment protect the thing called political speech? And then we say, yes, okay, well, then you can't do that. That's the First Amendment test. It, it doesn't go to step two where it's like, well, is it worth it to, to regulate political speech because of the good to society? So that's really positive, and that means that the case will be used for all types of gun restrictions that are be, going to be challenged. It'll be easier and clearer and hopefully more difficult for judges to play these kind of games they've been playing to kind of uphold every regulation of firearms. Does this make it easier for the court in different contexts to use a one-step versus two-step uh, process for determining uh, whether or not an action is constitutional? I think it does. I think that the, the movement of the court to a more, I would say, originalist and, and defensible jurisprudence in a variety of areas means that they there's a lot of precedent that we have that is kind of weighing things and playing games as opposed to first looking at the meaning of the text of the constitution and then applying the meaning of the text of the constitution so i think that this is sort of part of a trend that will be in other other parts not just bill of rights also interpretations of article one so it could be an interesting site in the future for cases that have nothing to do with the second amendment but just having to do with constitutional interpretation what was the uh what were the dissents well um I like Justice Stephen Breyer. Uh, he's a really nice guy, and he's written some important stuff, and it's just his last days on the court. Uh, but he wrote the principal dissent joined by Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. And it is essentially a, as, as he is wont to do, it is a long description of why if he were a member of the legislature of New York, he would vote for this law. Uh, like he would vote for restrictions on carrying, you know, with this May issue provision. It is a it is a policy dissent that cites things that are ca- quite frankly ba- baffling, um, it, it, like the rate of suicide by gun, for example. And then be like, okay, well, what could this carrying gun subjective requirement have anything to do with suicide? Uh, he just cites a bunch of gun statistics for about eight pages, many of which are are very misleading or misconstrued uh, or one-sided. Uh, he asks that there should have been a trial, meaning that there should have been a record that, that said, you know, what are the facts on the ground? Does this law, you know, prevent violence? And I think, unfortunately, for Justice Breyer, if that would have happened, he would have been shocked that there, there's very to no statistical evidence that such laws prevent violence. There's some studies on one side, but the Rand Corporation has a has a very meta study that kind of says we don't know, doesn't really work. Um, so, so it was it was very Justice Breyer, 
but it was him articulating his policy preferences. And it's frustrating for me because, you know, the two very different theories of judging going on. Uh, from Justice Thomas and, and the people in the majority, the justice in the majority view, you know, the question of whether or not gun rights are a good thing or a bad thing ha- has been decided by the Constitution. Uh, that you know that those those things were weighed already. That's what the amendments say. Like the, also political speech, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, or hate speech, that's been decided by the Constitution. Giving the accused rights, well, there's some cost to that, but that's been decided by the Constitution. So you know, in this context with Justice Breyer, I feel like if I if it was a Fourth Amendment case, and we were deciding whether or not something was an unreasonable search and seizure, and then I cited a bunch of stuff about how many criminals get let go a year because of because of the Fourth Amendment, because they get they get off on a technicality and how dangerous it is to society. I think that he would feel that was completely irrelevant to the question of whether or not something was a search or a seizure under the Fourth Amendment, and that's the way it should be with the Second Amendment. If gun rights are a bad thing. Then, or carrying rights too, then we you need to amend the Constitution, not interpret the Constitution according to our policy preferences. And that's it's just a frustration of that type of judging uh, that just doesn't so much occur on the more originalist side of the bench. There are perfectly reasonable, I think, burdens on people who want to have protests and demonstrations. Uh, you know, time and place restrictions? Are you uh, uh, being disruptive to a local community with your uh, speech? Those are perfectly reasonable. What do you think uh, would constitute a reasonable burden on somebody who wants to exercise their right to keep and bear arms? Well, you know, this firearm policy and legal community can be pretty, uh, like any, many navel gazing communities can be pretty, uh, split on small questions where I actually personally think that there are a fair amount of restrictions on both carrying and, and owning a weapon that would be constitutional under my interpretation of the second amendment. Other people think that the only constitutional version is constitutional carry, which is no permitting system, no requirements whatsoever. Um, I think some amount of objective criteria, like a mental health background check, um, and, uh, you know, maybe a criminal background check, uh, are, those are probably definitely constitutional. Um, and then other maybe things about gun safety or knowing the law of self-defense, you know, provided that they're not the kind of, you know, hypothetical onerous things where your, your class in the law of self-defense is, you know, required two weeks, you know, eight hours a day, but it, it, usually they're like a little webinar, you know, that you watch and click some answers and stuff like that. So I'm, I, maybe I'm a squish that is there are some of my friends who would probably call me a squish on this. And I think the same thing is true with regulations on what kind of guns can be owned um, and what magazine restrictions are. I think there are a lot of regulations that are constitutional, but th- that we don't really have a mature conversation about guns in this country because it's mostly partisan signaling. Like, because a lot of the regulations that are really pushed by the gun control crowd are either silly or blatantly unconstitutional, like silly and useless, uh, where the ones that they should be pushing, uh, you know, that could do something, they don't tend to push because they don't play good political theater. So, so it's, it's frustrating. Um, yeah, but again, I'm probably a squish on that for a lot of people. People who uh, favor heavy restrictions on uh, the people's ability to keep and bear arms uh, are more than happy to point to uh, a mass shooting and not, say, uh, a slightly above average weekend in South Chicago. Yes, and it's very that's very frustrating because your gun regulations that could be reasonably 
put into place and that could do something. The hardest ones to affect are those psychopath mass shooters who are not going to be dissuaded by various regulations. And so in those regards, you know, it's, it, assault weapons always come up. Um, I think a ban on assault weapons would be unconstitutional because I think assault weapons are clearly a type of rifle that is in common use for self-defense. And a demonstration of that is that, you know, in the back of like almost every police car in America is an AR-15 that those police officers use for the lawful defense of self and others. So clearly it's a good weapon for that and private people can have that too. Um, so yeah, the mass shootings, it's, it's, I've compared it to immigration uh, at times, anti-immigration, where uh, for people who are anti-immigrant, they will identify a recent crime committed by an immigrant and then say, we need to go after the loophole that that immigrant got in the country with uh, and then try and shut that loophole down. And then the anti-gun crowd will say, well, what was the last most most notorious gun crime? What gun did he use? Okay, we have to go up to that gun. And like, you know, immigrant crime and mass shootings are extremely rare, comparatively speaking. You shouldn't be afraid of, of either of those things. But as you said, if you're, you know, living in certain parts of Chicago on like a Memorial Day weekend and the drug war is raging and the drug trade is raging and people are fighting over corners and they're using handguns, which people rarely have ever bring up as something they would want to ban, which is good. But that's the majority of gun deaths in this country, whether suicides or interpersonal gun violence, by far, are handguns. Um, and so, yeah, in those situations, that's the place where you can be, you know, a little bit more fearful. And one thing that really frustrates me is that, you know, the people who are gun control more advocate more strict gun regulations are often complaining that gun rights people are obsessed with guns. But it seems to me that the gun control people are seem like they're obsessed with guns because they the only thing they want to do for a complex policy issue is the gun thing right i mean that, that, not exclusively but like why mass shootings occur and what we could do to try and regulate those kinds of complex array of things that could happen not just figuring out what gun he used and then banning that gun why all the murders occur in chicago well how about we talk about ending the drug war and like returning our police to actually being police who actually solve crimes and don't go around you know shaking down people and taking their money for civil forfeiture um and why are they shooting each other like what is the underlying cause of why they are trying to get a gun illegally by the way and then shooting each other and then of course why are people committing suicide because suicides are two-thirds of gun deaths in this country and there's no gun regulation that is ever discussed magazine restrictions assault weapons what you know maybe waiting periods it's a possibility uh, uh background checks none of those would affect the suicide rate so the conversation is very rarely what I would call like serious on guns. It's more just political and partisan posturing. So uh, as is often the case, and you can tell me if, I, if I'm wrong, I suspect there are a lot of follow on cases from this one ready to go. So what Absolutely. what is most likely to be challenged uh, next related to restrictions on the Second Amendment? Well, now there's a new test for any restriction on the Second Amendment, the history tradition text. So the kind of stuff that has been, uh, you, everyone is going to be filing new complaints in the circuit courts, especially the ones that have been uh, hostile to Second Amendment rights. Because now the circuit courts are, are given new instructions by the Supreme Court that they have to do gun cases differently. So expect an assault weapons uh, case in the Fourth Circuit, uh, where, where Maryland has a very strict assault weapons ban. Um, and expect that case because they it has been upheld before, so expect a new one to be brought 
against that and say, okay, now apply the new test that the Supreme Court brought. I can tell you this. The Supreme Court does not want to hear another gun case for a very long time. I mean, John Roberts, if nothing else, does not want to hear another gun case for a very long time. One of the things that we asked the court to do in Cato's amicus brief was to write an opinion that gave sufficiently clear guidance that that the lower courts can stop, you know, playing with the Second Amendment and, and deciding the way they want to, and also that you know they kind of the Supreme Court doesn't have to do this again for a while uh, because this now these new standards now apply to waiting periods and uh, you know whether felons can possess a gun, which may seem like an obvious no, but that one is sort of teed up in some circuits because I've been involved with cases where I don't think violent felons should be able to own a gun. But if you committed like tax fraud 50 years ago and you can still not own a gun, that could be a different question. Uh, so those kind of cases are coming up um, and and it'll be very interesting to watch how the, the lower courts chew on this. This is one of the most important jobs of the Supreme Court is to give the lower courts good guidance. And sometimes they really fail at that. Uh, but I think in this one, they did a pretty good job. Trevor Burris is editor-in-chief of the Cato Institute's annual Supreme Court Review. We spoke earlier today. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.